Well, we're grateful that you all are able to make it tonight. I will do my best to not accidentally swear as I deliver this message to you, as I have the last couple of Sundays. It is humbling to be a fallible human being and to try to be in front of people and have everything that you do recorded as well. So, Wait, uh, yeah, I'll explain it later, son. So, uh, <laughs> what's that? We are recording this. Um, it's worked out really well off the phone last week, so we're going to try that again this week. Uh, we are in question five of the Baptist Catechism. And so uh, I'd like to read the question for us, and, um, and then we can read the answer together, and then we will try to work through the explanation of why this answer is a faithful representation of what the Scripture says in response to the question. So the question is, may all men make use of the Holy Scriptures? And the answer is, all men are not only permitted, but commanded and exhorted to read, hear, and understand the Holy Scriptures. So one of the great advantages, I think, of using a catechism to grow in faith is this. By breaking down things into very simple and focused statements of belief, we give ourselves the opportunity to examine in detail some of the facets of our faith that we typically just take for granted. We don't really spend a lot of time dwelling on them because We'd rather find something new or novel or different that we haven't heard before. For example, in question number five, which um, we're going to be talking through tonight, may seem to very many people to have an obvious answer. May all men make use of the Holy Scripture? Of course, the Holy Scripture is useful for all people. Why wouldn't it be? But considering that the world that we live in today is quite lost and that it is trending away from the Lord um, as ferociously as ever, I sincerely think it's a question we need to be putting some thought into. And if we don't say amen to the answer that we all just repeated together, the answer provided by this catechism, I think it would reveal a lack of understanding and of appreciation uh, also for the Word of God, which is so crucial to the faith of a Christian. So it's becoming more and more common to hear someone talk about the way that they're living their life uh, so very often far from the Word of God so very often making decisions that don't consider for a second what would be most glorifying and honoring to God, so very often contrary to the wisdom that the Lord has provided for us in, their, uh, in the pages of Scripture. And when they sum up their approach to living their life and their philo- philo- philosophy of existence, they say something like, well, I'm just living my truth, man. I'm just living my truth. What is wrong with that idea? You've probably heard that philosophy before. What does that kind of an attitude reveal? It reveals that people don't really understand what truth is. Truth isn't something to be owned by one particular individual. They don't understand where truth comes from. It doesn't originate in our perception of the realities that are around us. It originates in the one who originated truth. It, It reveals to us that people don't understand that ignoring the truth is going to lead to great harm for them. That if they want to convince themselves that something that isn't true is true, then they're setting themselves up for grave disappointment. And so this way of living, this idea that we should just live our own truth and find what works for us or what pleases us the most and then consider that the standard of what is good and what is wrong or right, this idea of living gives persons the, the mindset or the mentality that they can decide for themselves what their universe should be like. It's a product of the fall of man. Sadly, if a person continues to live with that kind of philosophy, they're going to live a life that is cut off from God. And their relationships with other people is going to be severely hindered as well. So this book, the scripture that can show us God in ways that creation cannot, in ways that our logical reasoning cannot deduce on their own, in ways that our unique personal experiences cannot expose to us, this book is an anchor of sorts, which can bind us tightly to what is truly true, which is not a matter of each man's own interpretation, but is a matter to be declared by the maker and the sustainer of all things, by God himself. So let's recap just briefly what catechism question number four spoke to us last week. And uh, actually, catechism question number three was speaking to the same topic as well. We learned that there are two forms of revelation, didn't we? There is natural revelation. Does anybody remember what natural revelation entails? 
Okay, creation is a big part of that. Natural revelation is the evidence of God's work and what he has created in nature. Um, It is also somewhat internal to us. We know that there is a conscience which in each man, their nature reveals to them that there is a God and that there is a right and wrong, though they might not understand it completely. Each human being knows that evil things are appalling to God, that there is a standard by which they will have to answer. So natural revelation is important, but it is not complete. We also need what is called special revelation. And what is special revelation? Anybody recall? Yeah, special revelation is what God has in His grace gifted us. Information that is true about who He is and about His desires for people. So special revelation is what we're talking about when we ask this question. Um, may all men make use of the Holy Scriptures? The, the question is essentially, is special revelation only for a select group of people or is it relevant and helpful to all people? So who does this special revelation concern? Is it only for the spiritual man? Is it only for the person who desires to trust in Jesus Christ and to include Christ in their lives? One of the first great heresies that threatened the church in uh, the second century was a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, it's kind of hard to pin down because it had many different forms. It was a type of syncretism, which means it was a philosophical way of viewing life and, and reality that was often grafted in and integrated into other religious systems, and it effect, affected negatively the early church as well. Uh, the basic tenet of it was a division of all of existence into spiritual and material existence. So a man was considered to have a material body and a spiritual spirit. In Gnosticism, it was argued that the spiritual part of things was always good and noble, but the material part of things was base and trended towards the wicked. Um, This Gnosticism, the word Gnosticism literally means secret knowledge or uh, hidden knowledge. Uh, was a, a type of religious thought that if you could find out the secrets of the universe, if you could seek for what is spiritual and understand things that other people did not discern, then it would give you an advantage in living your life, it would enlighten you, and it would bring you to a higher plane of existence. In that philosophy, in that system, secret knowledge was hidden and was kept for the select few. The elite who had earned the right to know these things, were given the information that was acquired by the the, the specialists, the gurus, the Gnostics. The word of God, in contrast, is not for the elite. It is not to be hidden. It is not a, a special thing set aside only for those who have earned the right to see it. It cannot only be for the Christian because God is not the God of the believer alone even if the believer alone confesses that Jesus is Lord. Does God only rule over those who want him to rule? No, No, God rules over all things. In fact, there's not a square centimeter of all of creation that God is not in control of. (laughs) God is a sovereign God. So whether or not you call God God, whether or not you confess and profess his divinity and his sovereign power, He is ruling over your existence right now. God's law is not only relevant to those who have a desire to follow the law. Those who reject the law are going to reap the dead fruit of disobedience. So we may have the freedom to choose to lie to ourselves and follow any God we want or to ascribe to any philosophical system that we want to. God does not, however, stop being who he is just because we choose not to think of him in our day-to-day lives. He does not stop doing what only he can do. He remains God. He remains judge. God sits on the throne of all existence, and everything that happens hinges on his provision and his will. So all men are not only permitted, but are commanded and exhorted to make use of the Holy Scriptures. Revelation 2, verse 29, says, He who has an ear, I've got that on the screen for you here. I'm going to do my best to not ignore the PowerPoints, I know they can be useful. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if you have the ability to hear God's word, what should you do? You should hear it, right? 
Jesus, if you might recall, in his teachings in the Gospels, very often concluded a sermon or a parable with a very similar phrase. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. Jesus had an advantage that we don't. He knew who had spiritual eyes and ears, who would receive the things that he taught and who would, on the contrast, reject it. We don't have that advantage. So when Jesus calls out, he who has eyes, let him see. He who has ears, let him hear. We should simply receive that as all need to hear. All need to see what Jesus has to say. Even for those who can't physically hear, the gospel is going out into the world. This is a picture of uh, Juan and Audrey Parra, who are um, getting ready right now and preparing to go out into the mission field. You might remember Audrey as the daughter of Billy and Dan Juday. Uh, she just recently uh, overcame cancer, so praise God for the healing that she's experienced. Um, but they are right now trying to drum up support to go overseas. They're going to get training in Romania. And then they're hoping to be stationed in Japan to join one of several teams that the Wycliffe Bible Institute is planting throughout the world to do Bible translation specifically for deaf communities in the world. So those who cannot speak, those who cannot hear, still need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing is they're creating uh, a video Bible that they want to put online so that those who communicate best through sign language, because not everyone who signs can actually read. Um, those who communicate through signs will be able to see and understand the scriptures of God. So if, uh, if you're interested in that mission, you want to know more about it, you can talk to me afterwards. But please be in prayer for Juan and Audrey Parra as they get ready for that. They're hoping to leave sometime within the next year. So what is the scope of the calling to hear God's word? In Deuteronomy 31.11, um, Deuteronomy, as we spoke of in, first, uh, in the service earlier today, means the second telling of the law. Um, and this takes place right before the Israelites enter into the promised land. They are getting a recap of what God has called them to do as, their, as the covenant people of God. Verse 11 of chapter 31 says, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So the word of God was to be read publicly. It was to be available to all. And this applies specifically to what people group? Israel. You might notice that uh, as you read through the history of Israel, when they had these gatherings, they didn't have a nursery somewhere and they had all the adults get together. They brought whole families in to hear the word of God. So when we think about who should hear and make use of the word of God, uh, this makes me grateful that we've begun to integrate our little babies, our young children into our services because regardless of what age you are, you need to hear the word of God. Even if you are too young to speak or understand language, hearing the word again and again, I believe, has a, a positive effect on a child. It's important for them to grow up with those words being spoken in their presence. So the nation of Israel was read the word of God verbatim. It was read publicly so that all could hear. Some of the darkest times in the history of the church were the times when the word of God was hidden from people. For a, a vast swath of history, the Roman Catholic Church in particular only published the Bible in the Latin language, which was an academic language, meaning that the average person who was not uh, of the intellectual and wealthy elite didn't have the Latin skills that would have come from a university education. They were not able to access the Word of God. The only way that they could know what the Word of God said was by trusting somebody else who could read Latin's interpretation of the Scriptures. And so it's, it's good to see here in Deuteronomy 31, this mandate that all of God's people are to hear his word. Now, should we take this scripture to mean that it is only relevant to Israel? No. Colossians 4.16 says, And when this letter has been read among you, speaking of the letter to the church at Colossae, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there was a general practice that when a letter went out from a, with apostolic authority, that it was to be shared with other local churches. God wanted not only Israel to hear his 
revealed word, his special revelation. But the New Testament churches were also supposed to all hear the special revelation that God had prepared for them. He wanted those messages not only to go out to specific churches, but he wanted the general equity of those letters to go out to all the believers in, in Jesus Christ. But does God declare in these scriptures that people who are not in covenant with God should not bother to read the word? Is it irrelevant to them? No, the scripture continues to tell us who is to hear the scripture. Look at this passage that comes right after the first one I read in Deuteronomy 31. This is Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 3. This is often referred to as the Song of Moses. Moses is uh, praising God for his faithfulness and covenant in finally bringing the people into a holy land, even though Moses was not himself allowed to enter in because of his personal failings. He was grateful that God was still keeping his promises. As he says in verses 1 through 3, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So looking at that passage of Scripture, who does Moses intend this message to go out to? It's not just Israel, right? It's not just the church. It is. Let the earth hear it. Let all the heavens hear what, I have about, what I'm about to speak. So all men in the heavens and in the earth need to hear and make use of this word of God. It's interesting also to think about the fact that not only Israel, not only the church are in covenant to God. All men are actually in some degree of covenant with the Lord God. We are born into a broken covenant, aren't we? By way of our connection with Adam. Adam, when he was created in the, government, in the garden, entered into covenant with God. A covenant that had uh, blessings built into it. And also um, uh, sanctions built into it. God told Adam that if he, was, if he would be obedient to the calling of taking care of the garden and multiplying and filling the earth, and if he would listen to what the Lord said and enjoy the many trees of the garden that God had provided for him, and if he would simply agree to not eat from one tree that was forbidden from him, then he would be blessed. He would be a people in fellowship with God, and his offspring would be blessed as well. But because of Adam's failure in this covenant, we are experiencing a brokenness in covenant as well. Even before we were in the new covenant of Christ, we were in a broken covenant with Adam. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about how Jesus is the new and better Adam. And coming and taking on flesh, he was able to accomplish what Adam was supposed to have accomplished, but didn't. Jesus fulfilled the whole of the law. We can also see that all mankind is in covenant with God by reading chapter 9 of Genesis, where after the great flood, a judgment that wiped out the vast majority of not only humanity, but the animal life on earth, God made a promise to Noah and to his offspring. And this covenant promise in many ways shadowed and echoed the promise that was made to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the people who descended from Noah to go forth were to fill the earth and to have dominion over the land. Uh, they would be beholden to God. Uh, so why shouldn't man pay attention to the words of God? We are in covenant with him even if we are not under the new covenant yet. Some people have uh, taken a liking to saying, if you give your life to Christ, if you receive the salvation that, that he comes to bring, then you will have a personal relationship with Jesus. But in reality, it's probably more accurate to say that we all have a personal relationship with Jesus. We're all in covenant with him. It's just a matter of what the quality of that relationship is. If we are in the first Adam, the, the covenant relationship that we have with God is a, a relationship of wrath. We are under the sanctions that Adam earned by eating of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. So if we are in Christ, if we are in the new Adam, we have been given a better covenant, a covenant that isn't always superior to the one that, that Adam has ruined. And uh, so we, we all have some kind of a personal relationship with Jesus. It just matters whether Jesus is our substitutional sacrifice or not, whether the wrath of God is upon us or whether the grace of God is upon us. So everyone needs to understand who God is. Everyone is in covenant with him, so everyone needs to understand what he desires. 
And that means we shouldn't be awkward, church, about bringing up the word of God. We should not feel apologetic about quoting scripture to people. It's not only for dedicated believers. It's an incredibly old document that is remarkably relevant to today. Its principles are prolifically useful to the people all around us. And I'm sure you can identify in your mind right now several people that you've been praying for, several people that your heart breaks for, who would be doing better if they would simply put their eyes upon the scripture and seek to do what it tells us to do. It might be offensive to people to hear from God's word. It might not fit the narrative that they have been brought up to buy into thanks to the media. It may divide in a convicting way. We hear that the word of God is like a sword that cuts through uh, bone and marrow. It is, it's able to divide and to show us what belongs in our life and what does not belong in our lives. Nevertheless, though it can be offensive, though it can sting, though it can divide, we as God's people should share it because it contains the things that God desires people to know of who he is and what he desires. Is its usefulness primarily practical, friends? Is it mostly for wisdom intended to improve the quality of our life here on earth? What is God's end goal for our hearing and our reading and our understanding? John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, speaking of the book of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God did not cause the creation of this important word that we're speaking about tonight so that it might be stored in a library somewhere and used as an occasional reference work. He created it to be read because it points to the one way that we might have a right relationship with him. John 17, verses 17 through 18 says, this is in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He asks the Father to sanctify his people in truth. Your word is truth, he says. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So he's talking about how we as human beings have a need to be sanctified, to be washed clean, that the iniquities that cling so closely to us, the wickedness of our natural desire in Adam, needs to be washed away and scrubbed away. And what is the one thing that can do that? It is the blood of Jesus Christ revealed to us in the word of his truth. And notice in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Who is the them that Jesus is talking about? Christians. Christians, that's right. He has sent believers into the world. And what has he sent them into the world to do? To proclaim the very word of truth that points us to the truth. The Great Commission that we spoke about briefly this morning is a command for all of God's people to go forth into the world and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the triune God, to teach them all of the things that Christ has commanded. And when he's talking about that, to teach them all that I've commanded, what is he specifically referring to? He's specifically referring to the scriptures, the special revelation of God, the things that he has commanded of people that they might live according to. This was expanded upon in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The scope of the gospel work of the church expands. Right before Christ uh, ascends to be with the, the Father, to sit at his right hand, he speaks to the disciples who remain. Uh, this excludes Judas, of course. But the other 11 disciples are before him. And he says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So this only reinforces and strengthens the fact that we are to be witnesses worldwide for these things that are written in this book. If we are not carrying this book with us, if the message of Christ as revealed to us is not the message that we're preaching, we are not his messengers. Because this book, the Bible, is his message. Ministers like Paul and Sean and Ross and myself are particularly responsible to make sure that this gospel is read and heard and understood. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Paul instructs a fellow servant of the gospel, Timothy. He says, until I come, devote yourself to what? To the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. 
So those who have experienced the calling of, of leadership in God's church are called to lead according to this book, not according to their own precepts, not according to the business practices of the day, but according to those things that are recorded in Holy Scripture. Look at how important God's word is for those whom he calls to be leaders as described in Deuteronomy 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this speaking of the king who will re, uh, uh, the ruler who will reign over the people of Israel, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, of course, this is speaking of Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, but when we think about all of Scripture as God's law to us, how much of a better position will we be in today if those who ruled over us walked around with the Word of God in their hands? If they were pursuing the Word of God every day, if they were looking at the wise things that God has revealed to us and not going to forums and focus groups and trying to understand what the people wanted, but were instead considering what was pleasing to the Lord God, how much better would we be ruled today? And that is why we as God's people are to be lifting up prayers for those who are in leadership every day that they would seek this good and holy and trustworthy word because they need it as well. Whether they are saved or not, they need the word of God. But this mighty word is not for leaders only. All who seek the wisdom of God by reading the word of God are blessed by the pursuit of it. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Again, this is specifically about the prophecy that is contained in the pages of Revelation. Uh, but these kinds of exhortations that really do apply to all of Scripture, we are blessed when we put our eyes upon the Word of God. Not only that, there is what we sometimes call a general equity, an intrinsic universal value in the Word of God, that is beneficial to all who consider it, even if they are not themselves believing, practicing Christians. We see a, a little picture of this in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word is an effective tool that God has used to shape cultures, that God has used to give wisdom to his people, that God has used to expose wickedness and point to his perfect judgment on those who ignore him and reject him. Does that mean that all who read it will be saved? When it says that, the word shall never return void. Does that mean all we got to do is forcibly make someone read the word of God and it will not return void, they will be saved? That's not what it's saying, is it? But what it is saying is that it's going to accomplish the purposes that God has set for it. And those purposes we can trust, friends, are always good purposes. So how should we read this word of God? How should we listen to these words? Luke 10, 26 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? What does that phrase mean? How do you read it? What is that indicating to us? What is your context with the scriptures? Okay, what kind of context do you draw from the scriptures? What's your understanding of it? Okay. So doesn't that imply that those who read the scriptures need to be contemplating the scriptures? That those who read the scriptures need to be meditating upon God's word? That they should approach it, not just to memorize it, but also to understand it and with an eye to applying it to their lives? Jesus challenges this lawyer, how do you read it? He's assuming that the lawyer had thought it through and formed a viewpoint upon it. And so God's scriptures 
The special revelation we're talking about this morning is not just a list of commands. It's not just rules for us. There is interpretation that's involved with the appreciation and the benefit of being exposed to this word. And interpretation is a lot more than just siding with whatever view seems most favorable to you in a moment, right? Comprehension must be important to us as well. We should read the scripture in order to understand. We should read the scripture as one who is intent to hear it. Not just to hear it in a superficial, audible way, but to hear it in the way that Christ talked about when he said, he who has ears, let him hear. John 8, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reasons why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is Jesus, of course, confronting the scribes and the Pharisees. These were people that should have the best knowledge of God's word. These were people that were putting their eyes upon the scripture regularly. But they were not reading the scriptures of God so much to understand the message that God brought forth in those words, the declarations that he had for his people. They were using the word of God as a tool to justify the way they exercised their power over the people. There was an appearance of righteousness in that kind of handling of the word. But there was also a depth of depravity within those scribes and Pharisees because they were not really trying to hear and understand what God wanted them to know. They were simply using this scripture as a means to an end, as an amplification and a justification for their own religious power. Some are only willing to listen to God if he says what they want to hear. But that is not actual listening, is it? Now, boys, I'm sorry I didn't ask you if I could use this illustration um, beforehand, but I'm going to do it anyway. So there have been times, this is kind of like a general illustration, when my kids will come up to me and one of them will ask me, what is dessert? What's for dessert tonight? You know, we, we did our time. We ate our actual healthy food. What have we been waiting for this whole time, right? And so I will reply with something like, we've got some ice cream pops in the freezer, but it's too late for dessert tonight, and we've got to get up early in the morning, so we'll have them tomorrow at lunch. And what my kids heard me said is, we've got some ice cream pops in the freezer. (laughs) That's the part that they heard. And so I have literally told my kids, we can't eat them now, we'll eat them tomorrow, and then two minutes later, somebody walks around the corner with an ice cream pop in their mouth. And that's just the nature of man, not just of a child, but of man. We tend to hear what we want to hear. But we don't have the option of approaching God's scripture that way. Uh, We are trying to manipulate God and use him for our own means if we go to hear the word of God simply because we want a stake with which to prop up our own philosophy or way of life. We need to approach the word of God determined to read attentively for understanding, not for entertainment or for selfish inspirations that might tickle our fancy and, and make us feel better about ourselves, not as a proof text for our own will, but as an expression of God's holy and immeasurably valuable will. We have a great example of the right attitude commanded here in a passage recorded in Acts chapter 8. The uh, Apostle Philip has uh, been preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, but the Spirit has led him to go out into the wilderness in Samaria. And so he left that really fruitful post and he's wandering through this barren land. And as he's wandering, he sees a caravan. And in that caravan, there's a very important person. There is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now this eunuch was a servant to the queen of Ethiopia and would have returned to have influence in the courts of that far off land. And so, so Philip ran up to him in verse 30 and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. This Ethiopian eunuch somehow has acquired a scroll, which was a very expensive and rare thing back then, to have a scroll such as Isaiah. And he asks him, do you understand what you are reading? The eunuch said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so in this pagan Ethiopian eunuch who is not a Jew who does not have the advantage of heritage in God's word and revelation, this Ethiopian eunuch possesses a humility, a humility to admit that he needs help to understand the word of God. And on top of that humility to be able to say, I don't quite know what this means, he also has a desire to read and understand and is willing to ask for help to accomplish that. 
So friends, this man is just briefly mentioned in scripture, but I think we see in him an example to how we should approach the scripture. That we should want so badly to know what it says that we're willing to be humble and to admit that we don't quite get it. I mean, I've read through Isaiah and parts of Isaiah I don't understand. And I'm, I'm a pastor trying to preach you the truth. So I've had to go to people who know it better than I do and say, what is the real meaning of this? How can you help me to understand the proper interpretation of this passage of scripture? Not the one that I like the most, not the one that it fits the worldview I'm already operating on, but the one that accords with everything else that God says in his holy word. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What a powerful little scripture that we are to have a holy reverence and awe for the word of God. That it's not just something we put on our mugs and our bookmarkers that we buy at the Christian bookstore, but that the holy word has a power to it. It has an eternal, lasting power to it. Should we not want and should we not desire to know what these words mean? For this is the way that God communicates with his people. Now, people I, I, I've talked to in, in different you know, branches of Christianity today, they want God to speak directly to them. They can't wait for a a personal word from the Lord, some kind of new prophecy, some kind of fresh word from the Lord. And I think that kind of desire exposes a covetousness in them, that there is a lack of contentment, that God has already given us this beautiful and wonderful and diverse word that we can enjoy and feast upon day in and day out. And yet so many of us would rather watch commercials on TV than spend our time leafing through the eternal revelation of who God is and what he wants for his people. So we are to have a reverence for this word. We are to tremble at the word of God. We are to read it humbly, knowing that they are the words of the one who made us, who is the only source of our redemption. James 1.21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, right, with a teachability, with a desire to be molded and shaped by the master hands of the potter. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Could there be anything more powerful said of the word of God that it contains the truth which can transform the heart of man? When you read the word of God, you are not the critic. God is not the one on trial. He needs no suggestions from you. You are to read and receive with a teachable heart. Sometimes that goes strongly against our nature. We want to read and analyze. We want to read and compare. We want to read and contemplate and try to fit what God says into our own sensibility and sense of reason and logic. But there must be a humility in the way that we read God's word. We should be determined to read it humbly, meekly, ready to receive what it has to say, and also determined to read it in faith knowing that if the author of these words is truly God himself, then we can trust what these words have to say. We should read the word with faith that the things that God has revealed to us are an accurate picture of what he desires for his people. 2 Chronicles 2.20. I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 20.20. It says, They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. This was uh, Israel preparing to go to war against the Moabites and the Ammonites. And we don't have a nation uh, with sword in hand ready to battle against us. But I think that the principle holds true that, that we will be more successful in life. We will be more established and sure-footed if we would humble our hearts and believe his prophets, we would trust the apostles and the things that they wrote down, that we would take them to heart and let them shape us. It is not enough to, to hear the word of God. We hear, we understand, we believe. And belief is not just a mental exercise. It is a frame of mind that leads to an action. And so James Chapter 1, verse 22 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. This word is for everybody. And the hope is that as we spread the word around the world, as we share it with our family members and our coworkers and our neighbors, as we teach it diligently to our children, that they would begin to see with help from the light of the Holy Spirit that these are the true things that they can trust, that all the chaos in the world comes from the heart of man, but everything sure and good, perfect and pure has been delivered to us by the hand and the words of our Savior himself. And that these words are words worth following. They're words worth responding to in obedience. So what happens, friends, if we do not listen to this charge and we neglect the words of God? Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Do we want to be in the wrong? Do we want to live lives where we're just giving it our best guess, that we're taking a shot in the dark and hoping that our own personal wisdom will somehow get us through the day. If we ignore the true counsel of God's word, we're setting ourselves up to be wrong. And I don't know about you, but I hate being wrong. I I hate trying to figure out the right answer, putting all my ducks in this basket and finding out that I was completely (laughs) off base. I want to be right. But I know that in my own wisdom and my own knowledge, I can't be right. I can only be right when my mind conforms to the mind of a right and holy God. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, and which knowledge is he talking about? He's clearly talking about that which God has revealed to his people. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Wow. Wow. Meditate on that for a second. I have children, and I don't want God to forget my children. I want my children to know who he is. I don't want my children to live ignorantly to the word of God. Let us all desire so much a connection with this God of eternity that we would refuse to reject the word of God. But you can do much less than outright reject the word of God and still suffer if you simply ignore what God has given to you. So many of us have not just one Bible in our houses, but maybe even a dozen Bibles in our houses. You've got the Word of God on your app, on your phone. This is a real convicting thing to do. Go into your, if you've got an iPhone, I'm sure you can do this on an Android as well. If you go into your phone, you can look and see how much time you spent in the last week on which apps. You might be amazed to find out that you're spending more time on Quasi Cupcakes, the stupid little game, than you are in your Bible app, reading the eternal truths of God. What is important to us, friends? You don't have to reject it. You just simply have to ignore it, and you will be destroyed by lack of knowledge. So let us, friends, ask those who want to call upon the name of the Lord, not just do so because we're afraid of our eternal situation, that we want to avoid the fires of hell, but let us call on the name of the Lord because we want the Lord. We want to be close to him. We want to know what he knows. We want to know what is in his heart for us. We know those things by the scriptures that he has given to us. Christianity is not Gnosticism. It is not some secret hidden thing. We only give you the good stuff if you've proven your worth. The word of God is there for us. Ask the Lord God for his knowledge and his wisdom and he will be faithful to provide it for you. So are there any questions about this particular catechism as we have kind of worked through a lot of scripture tonight, I know. Um, any questions that it brings up in your mind about the usefulness of God's word to the believer, to the non-believer, to the world that we live in? Go ahead, Ross. comment um, regarding whether or not God's word with uh, non-believers it's uh, Jesus Sermon on the Mount feeding the 5,000 and so many other times um, he knows that he's talking to non-believers in part and possibly in the majority uh, when woman is 
seeing the attitude of the people that there were a lot of non-believers there. Yet there's Jesus sharing his perfect word again, Sermon on the Mount. Amen. And, and feeding 5,000. Also, so I haven't seen a lot of commentary when Jesus is arrested and eventually finds himself before Pilate and they have this discourse and at one point uh, in John 18:37, he says for this reason I was born and for this reason I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth that's why he was here and yeah. that coming here to be a redeemer um, hopefully I'm not blas blaspheming here but it's a, like under the umbrella of truth uh, truth would include redemption that, that Jesus is the redeemer yeah. and there's a lot of other material that also comes under the umbrella of truth and so when you are asked why did Jesus come here it's not just to, to redeem but to bear witness to the truth yeah. the greater and it is shared is to be shared with everybody he also mentions back in John chapter 2 after the wedding in Cana and turning water into wine and people are gathered around and did some healings and people said that, you know, I am a believer and, and yet Jesus says, uh, but he noted to himself that he didn't believe them because he knew what was in their hearts. Yeah. He knows what's in the hearts of men. So we can know that God's truth may fall upon deaf ears Oh, for sure. But yeah, we declare it nevertheless. That's right. And salvation is not an intellectual exercise at its core. So we're not saying that if the, the word is preached accurately, then people will automatically be saved by that. In fact, people sometimes hear the word preached in passion and with great conviction and accuracy, and yet if there is not a work in the Holy Spirit in their, in their hearts, they're going to turn away from it as if it was nothing. But how many of us knew zero of God before we were saved? I don't think any of us in this room would probably say that. If you count yourself a believer today, in large part, the stage was set for the Spirit to do its work by the preaching of the Word. What did the Apostle Paul say? He says, who will be saved unless they believe? And how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless a preacher is sent, right? So the Word must go out into the world. So the idea that the world is really, or that the word is really just specialized for the Christian community, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. It is, it is God's word, and it needs to go out. If it is rejected, if it is spurned, if it is resisted, so be it. It is the word of God, and it needs to be broadcast from the mouth of every believer. Any other questions or comments? I can comment on that, too. Go for it. I would, I would be one of those people that said I, I didn't have a clue what God's Word said when I was saved. I probably did, but I sure didn't know much. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was I probably, I could have, like, two weeks before it said, you know, there's no such thing as God that's just, you know, a crutch that people use. But I had been in church. Um, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't understand. Any, I didn't know Jesus was God. Um, so you can go, somebody can go from having you know, just a tiny amount of understanding all the way to the intellectual who is reading. As the person said, I've read the Bible eight times and I'm still on the edit or something like that. Well, you know, that person understands a lot more, um, but God's going to save who he's going to save whether it's just a little knowledge or possibly a lot. In my case, it was very little at that moment in time. Yeah. Very true, Ross. Very true. I had a, just a polemical observation to catechism. So, he says all men are not committed, are not only committed, but commanded. Yeah. 
throughout church history, this kind of statement has been attacked and defended by yes, all men are commanded. Um, I just know I've come across people bring this kind of thing up. Are all men really permitted, right? Um, well, it depends, right? I think what we're talking about, like you said a minute ago, all of us in this room had some type of seed, some type of light sown in our hearts, more some more than others, right? But we all have Christendom type backgrounds, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's Catholicism, Lutheran, or Mormon, whatever, you know, everybody's background Pentecostal, even some of these, some of these um, expressions of faith are are very heterodox. They're very, they're not orthodox, right? But there's some people, like Ross was saying in his situation, where he didn't even know Jesus was God. Well, there's people who are come out of far worse darkness than that, right? Like, you know, Ruth and I have some friends too, even from our old church that. Talking about entire lands that are just in darkness, where their worldview is just so polar opposite from growing up here in the states, right? Where, mm -hmm. um, like nudity and stuff like that is just the norm. You know, it's like we still get shocked when we see it here in America. You know, and we laugh, but it's, it's still not as uh, culturally acceptable. You know, I mean, even San Francisco, as vile as it is, barred that kind of stuff can take a place, right? But there's whole, you know, lands where it's just normal, right? So are all men permitted? I think I know what he was trying to get at. Um, but of course, if we ask, ask this question, are all men without exception permitted? Well, I think there are some people who come into this world, many people, from the cradle of the grave, are in darkness. You know, even in this country, I talk to a lot of people, I mean, the further we've gotten away from God in this country, so people don't hear the gospel until they're grown or even ever. And that's a shame, but uh, it's just interesting when you explore, like, what was the meaning behind the all, you know? Yeah. I would have to understand that as meaning that God is not, God is not keeping the gospel or the, the word of God. From, he's not disallowing anyone in the world from benefiting from the word of God, obviously without the light of Christ, it doesn't benefit us salvifically, right? But the word of God and the contents of it are available to anybody who has access to it. So you might say that men have been disallowed by other men from hearing the word of God, but I, I think in a cosmic level, what it's trying to communicate to us is that God did not just create the word of God and give it only to the church or only to Israel or only to a select, select few, but it goes out into the world. Yeah, no. like you said, proclaim it, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, secondary causes, men do suppress right. the truth and unrighteousness. And ultimately, that goes back to God, right? I mean, sure. you know, if someone, sometimes it's hidden from them in plain sight. I mean, they can even yeah. they hear it, but they don't have ears to hear yeah. you know, They read it, but they don't have eyes to see it. I've suppressed the word of God to myself from time to time, where I refuse to put my mind on the scripture that I know would prevent me from doing what I wanted to do. So I've, I've been guilty of that kind of rebellion in my own heart and had to repent of it. So, yeah, I, I think there is, there is, there is, you're right, there are senses in which the word is kept from us. But I think the drive of what we are learning together tonight is that don't look at the world and say, who is this really for? It's for everybody that you see. And if you've got the freedom to speak it, speak it. Right. Stephen. You know, I was trying to convey, right? It's yeah. like, like when you see it, it's like, are all men permitted? Well, they're not only permitted, but they're commanded, yeah. right? Well, just because there, there was times when the Pope said, hey, you can't have it in your language. This is, you don't speak Latin. I mean, you, you were still commanded, right? That's why we had men to rise up and say, hey, we got to get this to the people. Yeah, amen. Right? You know, I, I, think that's the, that, that, I think that's what they're trying to drive at too, right? I mean, obviously, I, I agree with what, you know, John is saying, that, I mean, we see in the Bible, I mean, it's like, you know, eyes to, you know, ears that won't hear and eyes that won't see. I mean, right. in a sense, they're not permitted to hear and understand, but God still, like, like Ross said, he still spoke to them, you know? Yeah. They were permitted in the sense that God spoke to them, but they just 
didn't, you know, through, through that providence, they, they, they weren't able to accept that. Right. Hey, see, sometimes we have to remember that we have to understand these documents in like a lot, a lot of historical theology too. So like you're saying, they would prevent people from having the word in their, in their language. Was it Wycliffe who would say like a, a Bible in the hand of every common? Yeah. Wycliffe, around 1360 or something. Yeah. Yes, I forget the exact quote, but the idea that you know, the common man should have it in their hand and yeah. able to take uh, advantage of it. Tyndale echoed it too when he was trying to get it into English. Yeah. That, yeah, he did. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So, that's, so I think probably the question is in light of that. Right. And I, I understand that. I understand that I'm not trying to criticize the catechism. I'm saying that those kinds of things will take defense. And sure. You'll, be, you'll have to go into detail. I mean, yeah, right. of course, throughout the Dark Ages, there were times when men were permitted, uh, prohibited from having the word of God. And yeah. I think someone who's sharp, a sharp atheist like, Former Ross would be able to come and you know attack those types of things sure. and make you have to stand up and defend what you're playing. Yeah, and th that's the disadvantage of simplistic statements like this. You have to flesh them out, right? You've got to go deeper. And uh, I, I would say that the Catholic Church and the way they handle catechism is they give you a Q, they give you an A, you memorize them both, they send you on your way. Yeah. Right? That's how they do it in the Catholic Church. We're not doing that here, right? Yeah. We are coming together. We're talking about these things. We're chewing on the concepts, digesting them. And I think this is the better use of a catechism, where it, it is a, a launching pad for greater depth and thought and meditation. Uh, so I'm glad that you brought up that counterpoint, because you're right. There are others who might see that. And, and again, this isn't scripture. Like when you read the Q&A, that's not scripture. That's man's summation of the testimony of scripture. So it's not it's not infallible itself. Uh, we're not trying to create a new scripture here with this catechism. It's simply a tool we're using to try to direct our thoughts on the way we believe. And uh, thankfully, these are rooted in the word, and that's why there's so much scripture shared on the nights that we do these catechisms. But yeah, definitely bring up those counterpoints, because it helps us to all, I think, broaden our understanding of what we're thinking about. Yeah, I don't want to assume that people sitting here will be able to answer like Paul or like you just did. It's like with Christine or somebody else in here, my wife is just Hey, here's what we went over on Sunday night. And that person reads it, and then they come back with an attack. Well, when we explore those things, we'll say, well, here's what they meant historically. Yeah. But here's, here's how you, you can answer it. Here's a good way to think through something like that. Amen. Amen. I have a question. I guess, um, so I don't know if I wrote, if I copied this down wrong when I was copying it to our church page. But the question of the catechism the answer has like support verses in Revelation 17, 18. And then it says, I don't know if this is saying if you have the book with you right now. That's the two. But then also 19, and there is a, a Revelation 17, 19 <laughs> that I can find, and, and either, even in the King James Version, whatever. Um, but then it's listed weird 1 3. But anyways, I was wondering, how do you see, or would you agree with Revelation 17, 18 as being a proof or a defense of this text? Let's see. Uh, uh, Revelation 17, 18? Yeah. So Revelation 17, 18 says, And the woman that you saw was the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Mm. Yeah, that's a misquote. It seems unbelievable. I think that might be a misquote then. I, I don't think that seems like it fits. It seems obviously like a misquote, but that could just be me copying the down wrong. So I, I there was a couple other ones where I... Uh, at least in bon uh, what's the guy's name who Benham's uh, exposition of it, where he included scriptures that totally didn't have anything to do with, from what I could tell. Right. So I, I would not consider that a proof of what we're dealing with tonight. Could be John seventeen eighteen. Okay. Yeah. That could be it. I'll try to fix that. Thank you. That makes more sense. <laughs> I was trying to think, like, maybe they mean it, like, negatively. Like, you know, the beast has dominion. It's all scribal error. Yes. <laughs> the original, you know, art, original text. <laughs> Autographs, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. 
All right, friends. Well, if we're satisfied with what we have talked about tonight, it's about 740, so uh, we can pray and wrap up. Thank you for uh, being part of what we went over tonight.